Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Intentional Growth Podcast. Thank you for tuning back in. This is episode 206, and my guest today is a returning voice to the podcast. I am talking with Jack Stack, the author of The Great Game of Business, A Stake in the Outcome, and one of his new books, Change the Game, Saving the American Dream by Closing the Gap Between the Haves and the Have-Nots. If you've not heard of him, Jack is the founder and president of SRC Holdings Corporation, which is a remanufacturing firm out of Springfield, Missouri, that is 100% employee-owned. So they are an ESOP, and he's been doing this since the early 80s, and SRC Holdings is where Jack developed his business model, Open Book Management, and some people call him the, the father of Open Book Management, which promotes financial transparency with his company's employees, and Honestly, it might freak you out if you're an owner and you're sitting there going, well, I don't want to give everybody you know, transparency into my books because of whatever X, Y, or Z, which by the way, we'll be talking about some of the objectives and how Jack handled those. But I want to give you a few of Jack's accomplishments and his track record over the last few decades because it shows how amazing this can be. Back in the 80s, early 80s, I think it was 83, Jack started with a hundred thousand some dollar down payment and a $9 million loan. And I think the share price was six cents. And today SRC Holdings has owned over 60 businesses, increased its stock value 360,000% and has saved an unbelievable $100 million in cash between the 09 recession and now anticipating a downturn. And their revenues are $450 million. And he has people on the shop floor who are making in the teen dollar amount. So I think he said Steve, his guy that has been there for years, is worth $2.5 million because their employee stock ownership program. If you're still skeptical, Jack has been called one of the smartest strategists in America by Inc. Magazine. He's one of the top 10 minds in small businesses by Fortune Magazine. He's also served as a world judge for the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year Award Institute and has been advisor of this group since 1998. And Jack designed the first ever United Way Entrepreneurial Fund to encourage innovation and the nonprofit community. Honestly, I can't tell you how much I respect what Jack has done over the years. And today he's gonna share with us how educating his employees on financial principles and integrating them into the company process allowed them to grow the value of the business into this unbelievable place. I'm excited because the insights into sustainable and long-term growth from the great game are invaluable given the economic movement we are currently in. He lays out exactly how empowering your employees to understand and participate in the company creates the opportunity to find new spaces to grow the value of the business on top of just growing the net income. Not only do employees directly benefit from the company's success, but Jack proved over the last five recessions and downturns that they were able to double the value of the business in those recessions because they had their employees and their entire team working together to figure out the opportunities to grow. When Jack and SRC Holdings opened up their books to their employees, 
They changed the course of the company for the better, and they made a precedent on what is possible when you get everybody rowing in the same direction and you give your employees the benefit of the doubt that if you teach them how the game is played, that everybody can succeed. We're lucky that they chose to open up their books to the world so that way we can learn from the great success of their business model. If you're still skeptical of why this might be beneficial for you and you are dealing with a lot of challenges as you think about all the uncertainty right now, how lonely are you? And the freedom that Jack explains is possible by getting everybody on the same page could be worth it above and beyond just the money that you're gonna get, that you're gonna get rewarded for by getting everybody on the same page. If you wanna check out to see how well your company's current strategies are aligned with your long-term goals, check out our two-minute multiple choice assessment to get your intentional growth score and your one-page intentional growth vision board. After the 20 multiple choice questions, the results will help you shift your mindset away from the annual income to focusing on long-term value creation, giving you the freedom to choose to do what you want with the business long-term. All you have to do is text the word intentional to 66866 or go to arcona.io to get your intentional growth score. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Jack Stack and someone that I think is an absolute amazing role model for what business and business leaders can accomplish in today's world. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Jack, I appreciate you coming back on the show. I'm super excited that uh, you and your team were able to line this back up. I was, uh, I'm just saying as we were chatting, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on. And uh, I think a lot of the mechanics of what you teach with the great game and what you do in ESOPs and just a lot of it. I think we can cover some fun ground today to hear how things are going. And and you know, the name of your book, when I was when I was reading the uh, the title, is my partner and I uh, you know, big advocates of Ray Dalio and like this conscious capitalism movement and people focusing us on value creation. And you and I talked about on the last show, just the, the, the whole like vanity metrics of scaling for revenue and of Inc 5,000 and all this shit. And I think the world got a major slap in the face of sustainable cash flow in the last four months. And it, and it does every 10 years, right? I mean, every 10 years there's a wake up call and I, this is my fifth time. <laughs> bring it right let's, let's well, bring this it is my, this is my fifth black swan you know is there anything different this time um than, than the other times or like another different every time but... yeah i think i think that's a great question it's now the safety and soundness and the physical soundness of the people and now it's getting to be the mental soundness of the people with everything that's transpiring as a result of a virus that we can't get information on and we can't get good control of i mean Normally, we like you know to get to a point of consistency and eliminate the uncertainty. And it has been just so hard with all the noise that goes around, the, all the statistics, and knowing what the right thing to do is to go forward. At the same time, knowing the devastation of poverty, of lack of jobs, of a of a 
a, a small company uh, closing down when they have all their assets into it. And the, so it, it's like, this one's like a pendulum. Mm-hmm. Oh, 09 was all financial. I mean, it was all financial. You just figured out how to, you know, rearrange your debt and look at your cash flow. This one is uh, you've got to be able to make absolutely certain that you're you're spotless. You're 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 you've done all the most you can in terms of putting the preventative maintenance and the safety procedures in, so nobody gets hurt. And then at the same time, you're dealing with diminishing demand at such a rapid rate uh, that you can't even figure out where the bottom is because we artificially now come in and we float the economy with a lot of liquidity. And a lot of businesses aren't necessarily operating on, on operation cash flow. They're operating on PPE, PPPs, and you know, unemployment compensation. And I think the devil is going to come out around August. And that's when, you know, there will be a significant change in income to a lot of people that aren't working. Businesses will now have to be forced in terms of whether they're going to hire them back or not. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the data is there for them to be able to make those kind of decisions because they can't get a handle on demand. So there's probably more variables now than there have been in a long time. Yeah, Jack, and I, I think what's interesting as as I some of the things that I want to cover with you is like those economic things. So since last year when you and I chatted, I've read a ton of books on the economy and economics. And I've just like, I've gotten so, it's just like, it's almost like an addiction. Like once you start diving into it, you understand how the machine works. You're just like, (laughs) you're up at at four and you're looking at the copper prices. (laughs) Well, and it's, you know, some of the the interesting stats is like if, if 70% of the economy is driven by consumer demand, and we need to understand how the consumers are spending. And you, you have 95% of the market of small businesses under $5 million in revenue. And I think we talked about some of these stats last time. That means you got literally 120 million Americans that are employed by the small business. And they're mm-hmm. living payroll to payroll. So not paycheck to paycheck, but they're just juggling payroll. And there's not a lot of understanding of when's the revenue going to come back the right way. And it just mm-hmm. is... It's going to be interesting to see how that all shakes out. Because like you said, I, I don't think you're going to be till August, September, till the PPP rolls through the system. And then people wake up and say, where's the revenue? <laughs> yeah. Well, my daughter has two small businesses, roughly about eight to 10 people in each one of her businesses. And that's in uh, retail. And the most amazing thing that happened is the federal government put $150,000 in her bank account, both of those businesses. I love my daughter dearly. Okay, but my daughter, I don't know my daughter. My daughter's gonna take that money. She's gonna put it in inventories. You know, she's gonna be put it in paying down debt, you know. And I still am trying to work on the disciplines of you know, she's the creative type. And she is listen, she is exactly like the major portion of the 120 million business that you're talking about. They have busted their butt for 15 years. They're totally out of cash. They have no oxygen in the room. They've grown and scaled their business to as far as they could skirt. We encourage them to take on as much debt as they possibly can. And, and you know, anytime the interest rates went down, that was the time to make a move, you know, mm-hmm. and no one ever thought you're going to have to pay the piper. But yet all these businesses, the majority of them spent in what they call no man's land. And no man's land was they did a phenomenal job. I mean, phenomenal job in terms of what they were doing. But they were surviving on a little bit of cash flow that wasn't going out to their folks, the credit cards, the banks, you know, anybody that they leveraged to get that business up and running. And 
I thought for a long time that these are the people that we really need to be paying attention to. These are the people that if you know we really are really going to want to grow the economy, we should take the ones that have been out there five and ten years that have been, haven't had the oxygen and then really develop something for them to be able to take off instead of spending a lot of money in six hundred thousand startups a year that are fresh out of college and they're convinced they can be entrepreneurs and they're convinced that they'll be innovators and incubators and things of this nature. And uh, we don't have our priorities in the right spots. I think this is what I'm saying. Pre, pre-revenue funding, right? Valuation. Yeah. Oh, don't you love that? Don't you love that? Like, where, did you get, where did you get that multiple? All right. Where did you get that multiple? And they say, well, that's what we were taught in the incubator center. I said, for your idea. You no, know, no, for the niche we're in. Oh, the niche determines the multiple. I get it now, you know. <laughs> so, so here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'm going to find a niche with the highest gross margins, and I'm just going to go out, you know, and start a business. I mean, it's just... You know, so What's interesting, Jack, is like, I, and as we get into, because I, I want to, like, I want to be able to talk about maybe mechanically and then towards the end of the episode, too, of you know, how open book management and then if, you know, what to do prior to maybe an ESOP, if someone wants to go towards an ESOP because a third party sale doesn't work, how to maybe go from open book to then an ESOP and how the whole team and the financial literacy is going to be helpful before we even get there, you know, just to continue this train of thought for a second is like what I found, find interesting. And one thing that since you and I talked uh, um, last, my partner and I, as we've talked about value creation, Mm-hmm. And we we came up with this and I it was like, I synthesized it through a couple of podcast interviews where I don't know, I honestly can't pinpoint who said it, but the, the 95% of business owners that are below the 5 million in revenue, most of them focus and solve for annual income, salary and distributions, their K1 and not value creation. And they oh, haven't, God. they haven't separated their management role, their payroll from ownership because they don't understand ownership valuation. So they don't know how to reinvest it. Therefore, living the payroll to payroll. And I just like, you call it the oxygen and the financial literacy of most of these business owners is kind of terrifying, honestly. It's just... Yeah. And a lot of them are in, have variables like seasonality in the businesses they have, you know, and they, you know, the, the demographics change so rapidly. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, the four things that I think that they need that they don't really get is one is the whole idea. I think the great relationship builders, I think you need that. Okay. I think most of them are real good relationship builders. But when it comes to the second leg of the stool, when you talk about strategic thinking, I don't think any of them think about long-term. Okay. I don't think too many of them think about, you know, downturns in the marketplaces or where do I want to be at a specific time in a specific place. Pretty well, crap. You know, wrapped up in terms of what they're doing at the at the present time, they can't see the train coming through the tunnel, so they're not adaptable to change as fast as they need to do. Which is the third leg of the of the stool, and then fourth, the most important thing for them to grow, they got to develop talent. You know, and they don't focus then on building talent because when they do have an opportunity to be able to grow, uh, nine times out of ten, I've seen is they don't have the people ready to be able to handle the growth. So that was what we decided a long time ago is that. We do not want leadership to stymie our growth. So in order to be able to teach a leader, why don't you try to develop a program where you want everybody to be a leader, knowing fully well that some people are perfectly happy working 30, 40 hours a week, going home, picking up their twins, 
hugging them. And having, <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> and, having, and having a good time. No, there is. It's true. But also, why not create the avenue for the people that want to grab the brass ring? So when the opportunity arises, okay, when you hit that sweet spot, that you have the team, you have the people ready. And, and that readiness comes with this discipline that we you led to, and that was that open book and that great game theory, all right? The theory was to teach them how the report card of a business is looked at, okay? In, in a small business, most people are, are focusing on quality and they're focusing on delivery. And, you know, they're really not focusing in terms of, you know, what's this thing going to be, what could be, what I need it to be, what I vision it to be, what I want it to be. All right, like you say, they're in the, they get in there quick and they get in there fast and they do everything they possibly can to make it to the next bookkeeping or the next quarter or the next year. And uh, when we set up a company, I mean, we want to make absolutely certain that people understand the financials, that they do the financials themselves as opposed to farming out the financials to a bookkeeper or to a lawyer or something of this nature. Because in your small business, your KPIs don't really match up to what the value of the company is. In other words, when I go look at somebody and the accountabilities in a business, very seldom do I see any accountability attached to an income statement, a balance sheet, or a cash flow statement. I mean, if you go to someone that's selling clothes, all right, I mean, they're not looking at margins, all right? They're not comparing what margins should be. They don't understand turns and inventory turns as it relates to margins, okay? But yet the value player, okay, I mean, they're going into a store and they're looking at the store and they're looking at the people and they're looking at the possibilities. But what they're really looking for is how solid is that is that that house? You know, does it have a new roof? Does it have the three toilets up? What makes it marketable? Or more importantly, is if a customer were to come in or a buyer was going to come in, what would they nick you on? Mm-hmm. All right. What would they nick you on? All right. See, what they'll do is they'll come in with all their financial ratios. They'll have ratios of your industry. They'll have the income ratios, uh, the balance sheet ratios, they have the cash flow ratios, and then they'll look at your ratios. And I'm telling you one thing, if there's a store out there that's turning inventories five times and you're turning inventories two times, they're going to nick you on the value of the inventory and you don't even know it, mm-hmm. all right? So the idea is, is that if you can teach them, okay, how to have a perfect valuation, you're running your store at top, you know, at top performance. And if you are not running it at top performance, you know what you need to fix all right. I mean, if you're, let's say you're selling clothes and you got a 50% margin on your clothes and uh, that barely covers a 3% PBT. All right. You know, right away. All right. You got to build up your margin. All right. And, but that the ratio tells you that, right. And the ratio gives you the direction of really what you need to do and where you need to go. And then when you unfold that thing, what begins to happen is that saying, oh man, I'm giving up my margin because um, my fall closed didn't sell. So now I got to knock them down. I marked them up when it was winter, you know, now I got to take it that eats into my margin. So maybe I got to change my behavior in the company. Maybe I have to put the newer products out there quicker with a higher margin. Maybe I slide the, you know, the older margin items out there on the end caps. Okay. You start doing things inside, you know, so you make that one ratio so powerful that no one can discount it. Nobody can take you on on it. Nobody can, you know, sit there and say, you're worth less because you don't pay attention to your margins, you know? It's, it's amazing, Jack. Cause like I, when I met my business partner now, I met him back in 2018. So it's kind of like the 2.0 version I've, I've been doing for the last five years. 
And he changed the dynamics that I think gave me the true insight of what you have been doing for decades because he was a CFO, well, still is a CFO, who's literally brilliant. And he had three statement model. So income statement, cash flow statement, balance sheet, ties them all together, trailing 12 months, annual budget, out your projections. And like yeah, right. he says it when he's like, well, isn't this how everybody does it? I'm just like, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm like, right. well, you're the, you're, the, you're the random finance person that has done everything right every day for 60 years. <laughs> but like, when I think about it, it's until like what was interesting about him that, and I'm correlating that to your methodology is that he approached it and I learned in a way that I didn't feel stupid. Right. Yeah, like right, I think right, right. It was like, Common this sense. Me- right. And like, it was like, okay, this yeah. isn't that complicated. It takes all this shit that I think a lot of people know and broke it into those KPIs. Right. And like, yeah. then it comes into this, it gave it, it gave me, and I think it gives other people competitive nature where now you can utilize that stuff just like you in your new book you talked about the the uh, money uh, money ball and like how that how the the game changes when you shift your perspective like that how did you like maybe because i don't think we got into in the last interview when you think about the game and how the game works and these fundamentals work how did you overcome that fear of financials whether it's the yeah. business owner or executives or employees yeah well i had no idea about this scorecard of business, okay? Because I built trucks and I built tractors, <laughs> all right? And that's what I did. And there was no, they never gave me a cost structure in this building of a, you know, 50-ton truck. I mean, it was, I had part numbers, all right? And I knew safety and I knew quality. <laughs> yeah, I knew I knew that. But in 14 years and working for a multi-billionaire company, I didn't know inventory was cash, okay? So you're talking to most one of the most ignorant you know, financial uh, person you ever see in your entire life. But when I began to then seek capital and they didn't want to take the blueprints of a 50 ton truck as my business plan, I, I had to, I, I, no, I mean, I went there with a blueprint. I went there with a blueprint that I could build something and I could save jobs and they could care less. Okay. And then they would start asking me these questions that were so far and so intimidating, so scary. Okay. I just had to go back and I had to take that 18 column green sheet of paper with a with a pencil and plow through it and I plowed through it and I plowed through it and then I I didn't I didn't get a, a degree in accounting all right in fact I barely made it through night school but I mean I was amazed at as I would fill out an income statement I began to realize there was a person for every one of those lines on my income statement I mean, Bob ran sales and Bob owned the line. You know, COGS, cost of goods, was established by the accounting department who projected what a cost structure would be. But then that broke down to labor, which was Joe Lober, and that broke down into overhead, which is mostly people. And then you have engineering. And it was like, oh, my God, here's where people can come together. What if I change the nomenclature from sales and just called it Irene? You know, like Irene, what are you going to sell this month? All right. Yeah. I mean, what is a what clearer KPI would you have than giving her the line of the income statement? Because in essence, this is where you want to go, anyways. So why do you have a sales line, and then you find out different ways of getting people to perform a goal to sales without giving them the sales line? All right. So I guess it was something that I learned in manufacturing was that if you want to take the constraints out of the process and improve productivity, 
you go right to the source. I mean, so I didn't only want them to make a great engine or a great truck, okay? I wanted them to make a great company. So I just appealed to their higher level of thinking. I knew they knew the specifications of a truck. So all I had to do was teach them the specifications of an income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement, and I personalized the damn thing. I, I said, look, you don't need a 360 review for me. Okay. I mean, if you're sitting there projecting a five to 15% increase in sales and you've got your entire team in, in that income statement behind you, uh, that's your, what other KPI do you need? All right. So one of the things I did was simplify the accountabilities. All right. But I always attached them to a line to the income statement after I had done maybe 10, or 12 different business plans for the banks, all right? I began to realize that once you learn this, it doesn't change. You know, <laughs> I told you I told you before, this is invented by the Venetian monks in the 1400s, right? That's literally what my partner says. And that's seriously what he says. I didn't I invent this. <laughs> yeah, and listen to this. This has been around here for that many years and people don't, still don't know how to read them. And they affect billions and billions and billions of lives, okay? I mean, it's just, I don't understand it. I don't understand the gap. It's either we got so confused in terms of adding all the accruals and the income taxes, okay, and the depreciation laws and things that we lost common sensibility. So I just broke it down into common sense financial statements. And you know what? They're the same way that they were when they were invented. All right. So true. It's so, <laughs> but, but then now we've got these derivatives and credit default swaps. Yeah, and blah, if blah, blah, you want to run a phantom stock program, you gotta accrue it. You gotta, you know, you get you gotta put it in your cost of goods, even though you're not paying it out. And I mean, there's all it's, kinds of it's so interesting, Jack, because like at, like over the years of as I've been helping businesses and dove into so many balance sheets and income statements and cash flow statements. I'm like, I'm like, people have to make money somewhere. Like, cause like, I just continue to pull the thread, which got me from, you know, the M&A marketplace to, oh, then I, I love understanding private equity and then ESOPs. And then like, I'm yeah. like, where's the money getting made? And then you start to realize that a lot of, and I think that's the challenge of what's going on, not to go down a major rabbit hole, but like there's just the financiers shuffle shit around up top. And it's not yeah. actually productivity that's generating profit. Like a business has yeah. to make profit. Right. Well, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen a lot of things in my lifetime. And one of the things that I've always been amazed that the dean of a business school never has a budget. Okay. Which I think <laughs> is kind of insidious. I don't understand how you can be innovative and creative without a budget. Okay. So what happens is that you're allotted, allotted X amount of money and you're entitled to money and you spend money, but you don't really know how to create it, all right? So I think what happens in the education system is just because there's a rental accessibility where you don't necessarily have to earn it. You just are allotted it, okay? The message doesn't get down to the people. I mean, it's, it's more hmm. the kids are coming out of school thinking there's an allotment of money out there. It'll either come in terms of debt or my parents are going to give it to them or a credit card is there but they really don't understand the application. They don't understand it, the security of it. They don't really know how to, uh, uh, you know, how to multiply it. And that's what we teach. I mean, what we, I just think that business has got to be the teachers. Okay, man, business is the only revenue producing society we have right now. You know, and without revenue, there is no society. There's a, it's interesting too, because I don't know if I read conscious capitalism before I interviewed you or afterwards, but like, it's this whole like a hey, business and 
like the good of society can actually be won. Because you you talk a lot about in your books, and and especially with the ESOPs and the the, the you know talking about shifting inequality is like business. The oxygen is cash flow, right? I mean that yeah, is right. the, that is the you need to have cash flow. And you need to have breath. And if you're a charity, you mm-hmm. need to go get money from someone that has money, or like you don't. Someone has to be creating profits somewhere, and so like this this notion of conscious capitalism, where you can blend the good of all your stakeholders and what your business is doing, then you can become one. And I just interviewed uh, Xavier Helgeson, who was one of the uh, first B Corps, and so that that was kind of the the shift towards this direction. But I think what you've done mm-hmm. with ESOPs, you're we're way ahead of the time. But I don't know if you get because you had a chapter in the book about I mean nonprofits are still businesses; they still need to generate revenue. <laughs> Yeah, but they don't know it teaches them how to generate revenue. I mean, they, they really do not. Uh, what we've done, and we've transformed our business to when we support a charity and we support a lot of them, we give them a revenue-producing idea that they can build on and they can grow on and they can scale on, okay? Because if they don't do this and you have a downturn, everybody stops giving, Every the charities run dry. The solutions never get resolved. And what we do is we try to teach them how to create an, an, an annual revenue-producing product that if they devote the right time and effort into it, they can scale the business, they can grow the business. And, and uh, then if there is a, a, a tough time, they can at least count on that sense of revenue, okay, that will continually be coming in in order to be able to support the, the charity or the not-for-profit. So like I want to cuz you've mentioned a couple of times so scaling and growing and generating revenue and what is like what would your definition of sustainable predictable transferable cash flow and healthy scaling of businesses and the reason I ask that is because I've encountered quite a few people even on the podcast that I've interviewed where they scaled themselves into needing to sell <laughs> Well, they, that's true though but we encourage that you, you you let off with that I mean you let off with the fact is that it's all about cocktail talk, right? Like people want to go to the cocktails. They want to say they're a million-dollar company or they just reached their first $500,000. And, you know, I, I was in the Inc. 500 early days, okay? And I was at all the meetings. And I would look at all the people out in the audience who desperately wanted to get their little logo and their little sticker to put on their letters. And they couldn't meet payroll on Monday, okay? It just broke my heart, okay? I mean, I eventually stopped going because I was... I felt that I was contributing to the wrong message in terms of the company. All right. And remember now, I mean, you, you, the dot com era, you mentioned the cash flow, a trillion dollars went out of the dot com era on one Saturday when Barron's wrote an article on how many of these companies had five to 10 days worth of cash on him. Okay. I mean, it was what the heck? I mean, it was like, didn't everybody know this? You know, everybody was thinking that that particular area was going to be like going to casinos. And and you're going to rake it in, you know. So we were always sending the wrong messages. Even to this day, we always address the top line or people think evaluations are based on two-time sales, three-time sales, four-time sales, five-time sales, something of that nature. You do have successes, obviously, that have scaled and basically, you know, Facebook and Amazon and companies of that nature. And they did it with attracting cash and not necessarily reporting earnings, all right? Mm-hmm. But that's... That's so few and far between. So then what would your definition of healthy growth and healthy scaling be? 
Well, it's 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 all really relative to the cash flow that you can generate, right? And I would never try to outrun my cash flow. And I would also make absolutely certain that in the back of my mind from an employee standpoint is that as I built the value of the company, I had to pay it off at some particular point in time. You know, that one day, I mean, look, this investment started at $100,000 of employees' money, and today it's $250 bucks, right? All along the way, I had to make certain we were going to pay that off, okay? Because this thing, this whole idea of distribution of wealth to the people that I created would have fallen flat on its ass if we had failed in any one of those last 38 years, all right? So for us to not fail, we had to be able to make certain that everybody understood how to read the valuations, how to understand the impact they made to the income statements, where they made a difference, all right, how to diversify the business, how to sell some businesses, all right, how to be able to create an outrageously successful company that could be around for a long period of time. But at the same time, we had to get people to get it so they understood what the value of a company meant. And it wasn't PBT. So when you think about like, I truly believe that what you have done in the culture and the training of the employees and creating a game and creating a unified competition about creating a lasting company, I believe that that is one of my definition, personally, my definition of a successful business. I mean, Bo Burlingham's finished big. I don't know if I asked, if I told you last time when I interviewed him almost four years ago now, I wow. said, yeah, I know. It went, God, fast, long, long, but fast. <laughs> but I said, Bo, is there a way to finish big and be a small giant. And he was just like, huh. And cause, cause yeah, so, <laughs> right, right. Like, what do you think Bo? And like, but it's, and it really comes down to in order to almost do both of those, you could pretty much in ESOP becomes one of the best avenues for doing so many of these things. And because of like, if you create a valuable business, you have options. You can get the liquidity as the owner. You can continue to have all these different things that it checks. A lot of people don't necessarily understand it. When I think about the dynamics in today's world, Jackie, and knowing that everybody's situation is different. So the listeners who are going to pounce on me for saying that it's not the end all for everybody, I get that. But like, given if you do a lot of things right, it can be one of the most advantageous routes because of the tax benefits, the wealth distribution, like the, just the overall structure of an ESAP, the challenges of trying to get there from the culture, from the people, to shifting the game of the and of the minds of the employees. If you're listening, because like I've had people that have gone through our material, Jack, and they've said that sounds really great, but like there's a lot of work I have to do to go yeah. from being the kind of the man, the owner at top who's isolated from everybody, to getting people bought into this, understanding it, shifting my strategies. How do you start that whole train to get to where it, where you want it to be? Well, when I, when I, when I was able to raise the capital, the first loan uh, to purchase the first company, I had made a promise to myself. I mean, our loan was so bad. I mean, it was really bad. It was one of the worst in the history, I think, of America. But uh, <laughs> we were we got the loan as a result of divine intervention. And I said, you know, if I get this loan, I promise I will. To God, I will spend the rest of my life teaching people what I learned in the pursuit of capital. Okay. And I would pass this along because, you know, if you can convert that to equity, all right, that is the most incredible returns that you could ever, ever imagine. And if you can get people to buy into it, we call it get them to the point of getting it. All right. Um, that it's more than a job, okay? It's a future. It's patient capital. Put in instant gratification with a bonus program here or there. 
but allow them to have the opportunity to grab the brass ring. And I, and I really think that it's kind of cool from the standpoint is that even the top paying executives inside the company are capped to a certain level when the shares get distributed on an annual basis. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there really isn't a top heavy type of a situation. The ESOPs of today, right there, Mm -hmm. they're pretty well thought out. There's a lot of fighting, you know, you hear it all the time where they think the CEOs are making all this money and it's a hundred times greater than the average employee. Mm -hmm. Well, the ownership ESOP is kind of rectifies all that. Okay. It doesn't allow the CEO to run away with any of the top, uh, multiples of the company. Okay. It's distributed as equitably as, as, as possible. You've granted it. You can use that working capital, um, while you're, uh, while you're uh, working, the tax really comes when the associate cashes their shares on the market. And some of it is at a, at a 22% rate. Some of it in the past was at 30, 35% rate. So the taxes are just a deferred taxation more put mm-hmm. on the individual that creates the wealth. So it's a really well thought out program. And and we had tried stock option programs. We tried bottom stock. We tried bonus programs with, you know, cash and things of that nature. So what we basically began to learn is we had to take what we learned by seeking capital and we had to teach it to the people. So I was like a kid in a candy store and said, I'm going to teach you to become a business people. And they all ran out of the room. They ran out of the room. Right? <laughs> and I thought, well, you lazy son of a guns, you know, you just don't care. You don't. And then it took me a while to realize that, you know, they were afraid. Um, they were afraid that they wouldn't understand it because we had spent a long time telling them that they're too stupid or this is confidential and it's not for your eyes. And this is a secret, the secrets of the company. Okay. And what I began to realize is that I had to get their confidence. I got to get them to believe that they could understand these things. Okay. So confidence was really, really important. And confidence in this game is not really too hard because if you can take their language and convert it to numbers and the numbers go into the income statement, they can see when they move something and then it's posted and then it drops down to a bottom line, you know, and they can see the fluidity of their activities inside of the company as it came out in terms of this income statement. So I thought, well, if the publicly held markets have to send out a quarterly report, what if I design my staff meeting? as a quarterly report in a quarterly report you teach them the numbers let's say for the month and then you tell them of anything material significance that will occur right so i thought okay well let's just do an income statement to start out okay everybody gets in a room you put up you post your numbers you know it's your responsibility a lot of peer pressure uh after about a year nobody really wanted to go in there have a bad forecast okay because if you had a bad forecast it was a sign that you weren't in control all of a sudden, people began to have that desire to want to know more about their line, you know, to get up in the morning and see, you know, get more information so they could get better because they made a difference in people's lives. So we were actually, we made these things living documents, okay? We made them part of our very existence. And even to this day, I mean, I could show you the amount of documents that I look at. I, I get sales reports on a on a phone before I drive out of out of my driveway, okay? Because I'm an addict to the numbers, okay? I, I admit it. I'm just like you. you <laughs> I, <know? love> <laughs> I want to see what's going on in the private day. I want to bet on the next horse, you know? Yeah. I wanna, <laughs> you know, I want, you know, so it, it you, we made it a game. We made it fun because it was the only thing that could unify a group of such diversified people. I mean, the only thing that you can get someone to agree on is that they don't like to lose, right? So, we built this repetitive pattern. It's a repetitive pattern that's not boring, that's exciting, 
And as a result of it, they osmosisly learn, but we also have materials for them to learn as well. But it's a drill. It's a drill no different than a sport, no different than a hobby. So then what would you, because you've been doing this for a long time now and way ahead of your time as far as like, you're coined the old father, grandfather of open book management. And I think like, be father. <laughs> I was going to say, no, you grandfather. told me about you, you told me about your 11 grandkids. So I'm going to use right. that as my excuse. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, the, the, the person that has probably come to you a gazillion times and says, you know, a bullshit Jack, I like this, this, like people aren't capable or I like, what is, where does the fear come from? Where does the naysayers, what are their count? What are their main arguments that the naysayers have to open book management and getting everybody on the same? Some of them are really trivial. Like, well, it was always my money at risk. You know, I mean, I, I put all the money in, I deserve all the money out. Some of them were legacy from family owned companies where the family said, this is something that you just don't share with everybody inside your organizations. Uh, some of it comes from the standpoint that the administration doesn't know how to read them. And that's a pretty prevalent. I mean, most of it's laid off on a bookkeeper, accountant, a CPA, someone. It's like, you know, you ask a CEO, so, well, let me see what my CPA says. You know, where really when you're on top of your game, you know everything that's going on. You don't even have to wait. You already got the answer before the performance is done. When you're moving at that kind of a speed and you like those kind, that kind of action, all right? Um, I just think that they think that people will ask for more money. And I swear to you, in the 37 years I've been here, they've never. I mean, we since 09, we ran a program to save $100 million for the next uh, recession, right? I mean, we saved $100, $100 million from 09 to 020, all right, knowing fully well there was going to be a recession. So we could go out there and make investments. We wouldn't have to lay people off. We would... I mean, we would know that we knew a black swan would be coming sometime, but when you get a black swan and you got cash in the balance sheet, man, you make some tremendous moves. That's awesome. And our, our history dictated that in the in the past four black swans, we doubled the size, we doubled the value of the business five years after every black swan. Wow. Yeah, because in a black swan, everything goes cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, this one isn't because of the stimulus, but I mean, if it goes any longer, everything will go cheap. <laughs> Um, so the naysayer, like, I think you covered it, like kind of what my, my experiences is like, is it also be, like, could you add it to the, that the business, it's almost like looking yourself in the mirror, right? Like if you're, if you don't know the numbers or if you are using the business as a piggy bank right? and, and like, and I, I think a lot of challenges, like that, that becomes one of the big ones where like, I call it the three year, the three year, the three multiple hamster wheel wake up, it's worth three multiple, you paid on your tax, you paid on your debt, and it's worth your annual salary. So then you grind, 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 you wake up worth a three month, but you're never decoupling yourself from like being able to reinvest that cash flow to grow the multiple to be able mm-hmm. to do that. And like, so there's like, I, I see that like, oh, it's my money and it's my business. I'm going to do what I want with it. That's there's, okay, sure. That's fine. That's true. But like, I think about the alternative in the stories and the books that you've released of like, holy crap, if you get a whole team pushing the ball uphill, you saved a hundred million dollars in a decade. <laughs> like, yeah, right. That's a bigger pie to split. Well, or double down on it. You know, I mean, how high do you want to go? Right. Okay. People should be focusing on that value to double down. Okay. Not to double down at a 15% growth rate on your top line to double your sales in five years, you know? I mean, 
what you should be doing is focusing on how am I going to build that value in order that when the sweet spot occurs, I can reinvest that value and I could go on another five or 10 year run. So as you go from the income statement and having people, you said that like you got that year and then people are kind of asking more questions as they're kind of all getting, you know, acclimated to, you know, this is something that we're measuring and monitoring. How do you shift that income statement knowledge to everybody measuring and monitoring the value? Like, what, what, is there any gaps? Well, I just, um, we had our shareholders meeting last week, all right, and uh, the stock price went up 4, 4.6%, and a lot of it was taken into consideration because of COVID. But prior to that, our stock price, our compounded CAGR in earnings was over 25% for three consecutive years, which is just a, a, unbelievably exhausting, okay? I mean, it was like, <laughs> and you know there's going to be trouble. You know there's going to be trouble out there and things of this nature. So our people are are very, very financially literate. I mean, they understand how the valuation is put together. They understand the importance of cash flow. Uh, they understand how the evaluator... Look, we spend $12,000 for 182-page evaluation in terms of our company annually. And we do the best we possibly can to make certain that everybody's working in coordination with how that valuation comes together, okay? And raising cash and having cash on your balance sheet, I mean, the appraisers are gonna sit there and say, well, that should be a dividend. And if it's not a dividend, I'll apply it to the stock price. So, I mean, you get a bang for your buck, all right, by focusing on it and get, and communicating and, and telling everybody. Listen, I'll tell you that's something that's just absolutely shattering. So we do closest to the pin every year, okay? And what closest to the pin is, is we want them to guess the stock price, right? This year, the stock price went to $133.11, and the average price of all the people turning it in was $131.15. It is amazing. Last year, it was 127 against 125. I mean, think about that. I mean, that's <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of people, okay, submitting for a big prize, okay, on closest to the stock price, all right? I mean, it's amazing. I mean, the wisdom of the crowd. How many mm-hmm. business owners do you think in the U.S. can guess their valuation? Oh, none. No, hardly any. <laughs> hardly any. What, what hardly do you think? The re- why? Why is that, Jack? It just—it's just interesting to me. I mean, I because I don't think people understand. I don't. You know, like if you're going to go out and buy a house, you're going to really, really stare it down, aren't you? I mean, mm-hmm. you're going to do everything you possibly can to figure out how to get the best price, but also to know what needs to be fixed, right? We try to run our companies that same way, okay? We always want our companies ready to sell because if they're ready to sell, they're at peak performance. That's the best case scenario is to have them ready to sell. So you have them ready to sell is making certain that you have the best financial ratios of your industry and you check it every six months. I mean, like a like a, a a thermometer. We check the health of the company every six months. We bring everybody together. They lay out all the markets. They lay out the opportunities. We then forecast it over a five year period of time. Everybody votes on it, which is incredible. All right, how many people will put a twelve month forecast out there and ask for people if they want to buy it before they even start it? Okay. So we spend the time to sit down there and explain the legs that holds up the assumptions on the sales plan. And then we execute the sales plan by asking them what they need in terms of tools to do the job. And then we communicate it on a weekly basis to them. So there's a lot to be said about repetition, repetition, repetition. I think culture 
and behavior is is because of repetition, repetition. But the idea is that repetition can't be boring. I mean, I think one of the reasons most of the management fads in the past faded was because they just got to be boring. They were probably good at the time. But when I came across the income statements, I realized that it's been here since 1400s and it ain't going away. So if it ain't going away, why wouldn't you figure out, if you got to live with it anyways, why don't you try to make it as exciting as you possibly can? Now, people look at me like I'm a goofball. They're going to sit there and go, how, why, why would you put an income statement? Why would you make it exciting? You know, why would you make it like, like fun, right? Well, why wouldn't you? Because that's the way you get everybody to buy into it, all right? When I, and I just, I'm trying to think of even how the best way to put this is because like you think about the management fads, one, obviously that's been out um, in the last decade, Gina Wickman's done a really good job with EOS and as in he's gotten some people to really, you know, get a handle on the chaos in their business. Yeah. One thing that I found just crazy is none of it's based in numbers. So you got all these people out there suggesting to do things and like no one's measuring the, the numbers and I'm just like, don't you, yeah. shouldn't you figure out whether you're growing value or you can even afford to hire these integrators or whatever you're going to call them? I, I think this is back to the whole idea that there are a lot of activities, only a few achievements. All right. Now, when you get to the, when you get to the, the, the financials, you got to post the number. All right. And you could have all the reasons why you didn't make the sales or all the reasons why you had a quality problem or all the reasons, but the fact is a fact is a fact, okay? <laughs> and that's where you measure that achievement. You know, If you're running a 6% warranty expense to sales and your competition is running a 2%, you know, you've got a significant problem that you have to have the courage to be able to fix. And if you fix it, it not only builds the value of the company, but it puts more on the net income line. And the net income line can be distributed back into instant gratification, wages, Things of that nature, and they, and you had a twofer because you built the company stronger uh, because of the multiple, right? I mean, how, it's, it's really hard to convince somebody. I think uh, I think uh, Walmart is selling at twenty two times multiple right now, right? And Walmart's a hot stock right now. It's going to be a hot stock for a while. So, so it's hard to convince someone. And if you have one dollars worth of profit, someone's willing to pay you twenty two bucks for it. That's a very, very hard thing to convince somebody of because what they've been told is if it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't. And that is the biggest lie there is in the world. All right. I mean, they don't understand the power of the multiple. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think about like, even in your stories, when you have the, like the people and you, you got this exa great example of, oh my God, I um, you talked about your team coming in there and there was like reducing labor costs. I think it was your team that then you had them come up with their own strategy because mm -hmm. you're now pulling the people who are all on board. So you had, what I found interesting is like you got, cause you're in manufacturing labor is one of your biggest costs or, mm -hmm. and you had them come up with a plan to reduce labor costs with, for their own team. Well, obviously they're going to listen to their own team. And then like they, and what I find interesting about the whole dynamic, Jack, is that it shifts this because like, I'm a capitalist, right? And I, I believe you are too. <laughs> but you have this ability with the ESAP mechan mechanics, how it's set up to like, it's not just everybody doing this so Jack can make another $2 million. It's everybody makes money and it's not like socialism. It's truly capitalism. I actually interviewed a guy, uh, uh, Daniel from, uh, oh my God, what's the name? It's a 135 year old business. Daniel Goldstein down in uh, Cedar Rapids, you know, um, uh, Foliance. You heard of them? Mm -hmm. 
No. And yeah, family business that turned into ESOP, 135 year old company said it's the true purest form of capitalism because of how it redistributes and everybody's working together. And the person mm-hmm. is making 14 bucks an hour for their wages. That's what they get for their wages, but they're earning ownership because of what they're participating in. I would say we have a, uh, we started in 83. Steve Hernandez and I are probably some of the older people been around for a while. Uh, Steve Hernandez has never left the, the shop floor. Maybe he started out at seven seventy five, and maybe he's up to $18 an hour. But he has $2.5 million in his uh, ESOP account. He's the proudest guy in the world. I asked him, I said, how long are you going to work? He says, I'm going to die here. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, but he, you know what he did is he, he he's, he's saving it for his kids. Yeah, he's passing it on to the next generation. Well, what I find interesting about that, Jack, is it's like you get this ability to have someone that like, yeah, like they don't need to be in, like you, you said that there's certain executives where they want to grab the bass ring and go. And there's certain people that are just like, was it Steve? Yeah. It, it like, but by working and working on focusing on the right things in the business, they're taken care of. It's almost like a house. Like when America's dream was to buy a house, yeah, right. because as long as you had a job and you paid off your debt, you'd wake up and you'd have a half a million dollar asset. Yeah, right? right, like, but like right. going to work and just being nice, like yeah. I, I just find it like they they've got that ability, like the, yeah. the, the it just it's no like kind of going back to the point of your the, the your title of your book your new book, it is the truest way to 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 change the game. Well, I I do not do a very good job explaining. It's also a very freeing way of leading. Okay, it's freeing. It's you know I don't have to worry about staying in my office and have my tie be straight or thinking that I have all the answers and, you know, afraid to really go eyeball to eyeball with somebody because they might find out that I don't know what I really don't know. You know, I mean, there's all these, these horrifying stories you hear at YPOs or, you know, where the CEOs kind of get together because they think they're, nobody appreciates them. Nobody understands them. And, you know, I just, you know, I just, it's a language that bonds everybody together. Okay. It's a way of talking. That's really kind of cool. And, you know, to have some of your people down in the machine shops talking about the investments that they're making and, you know, the, 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 how proud they are in terms of the shareholder and the stock that they have inside the company. And, you know, and I've watched these guys, you know, because in the ESOPs you can diversify as early in your fifties. Right. And they don't diversify. And you would go down and talk to them and said, look, listen, it's wise to diversify. You should not have all your eggs in one basket. And they looked at me and they said, why? Why should I diversify? The company's diversified. I went, oh, you're right. I guess it is diversified. <laughs> you know? And after all, after I had diversified, okay, and I'm thinking, what the hell do I diversify from? You know, it's like, this is a game where you teach each other. Okay, this is a day where you learn from each other. This is like, you know, no other things. The more you teach, the more they teach you. So I'm going to see, I'm going to, give you a statement that I, that I've made in our educational boot camps in our online course. Uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on it. Cause like, I think about like, if I, for business owners that let's say they've got a company that's worth, you know, let's say they're doing a million and even maybe worth 5 million bucks in ESOP terms. Right. Yeah, right. You say, okay, well, if this is something that would be interesting to you. So in our second principle of our five intentional growth principles, it's your financial targets. And there's three of them. One is your target annual income. Second one is your outside net worth. 
outside of the business because that will impact mm-hmm. your decisions of when and how you transition your ownership. And then the third financial target is the value of your company, net, right now. Mm-hmm. And then also, what does it need to be? So like what I've said to certain certain people is like, hey, if you had an idea of like you say, okay, mark, grow the value of your business. And if an ESOP is the right approach, you can have a target valuation of that ESOP to hit your own personal financial targets. Then you can in that process of growing it to that to the ESAP valuation, you can start working on your culture, the open book management, and then you can do the ESAP to make sure that you get enough of the personal reward for doing everything you might've been doing for the last 10, 20 years. But then you can continue to grow it after that because you don't have to just do it right now if it doesn't meet some of your financial needs that you've been working at for the last 20 years. So almost like this like transition so period. So why does it more people think like you think? <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I've got a podcast no. right now. I agree. Look, look, you have just hit the nail on the head and then go one step further and, and you could do it again. I mean, let's say you flipped it into an ESOP. You could take your money. You can roll it over one time at another deal. You could set up an ESOP as a form of cashing out and you can do it over and over and over again. But the whole idea is, is that you want to be somewhat responsible to make absolutely certain that the constituents of the company have the strength to be able to then grow it and share the earnings and do it over and over again. You know, that's our way out. Okay. That's why that's how you close the gap. You know, well, I mean, I, you I, hit the nail on the head. Now go sell it. I, well, I, I completely like, I, I think that like one of the biggest challenges, Jack, is that maybe it's either training for the owners of like, like reducing the intimidation of the financials. Cause like I was like you, I mean, I literally had my, my worst grade in college was finance. Yeah. <laughs> it was Friday afternoons there. at four o'clock. I mean, I was like already in my head was already in the bar. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and like once the t- intimidation went away, I was like, well, this is just a game. And like, and I got our employees involved and then like, cause it wasn't all about Ryan or my dad, it was like, dude, we all need help. Like, and it was truly, like you said, it was freeing. And I don't know if, unless you've tasted that, you do feel like you have to like protect, like, I don't know. It's like some false notion bullshit. And like, it's actually way better the other way around and you can grow faster and have, I don't know. But listen, listen, here's what people got to realize. The people that don't have access to the information make up their own. Okay. So they have their own idea what sales are. They have own idea what the owners take at home. They have their own ideas, okay? And they're off by six times multiple, right? <laughs> I mean, and and we are so sad because someone, so many people think revenue is, is profits, okay? Some oh my people, God, you're so true. Some people, some people are afraid to even talk about their profits when they have no cash flow, all right? I mean, the whole thing comes down as, it's <laughs> like you say, it's the cash that you create and where does the cash go? Well, there's only eight places cash can go inside of a company. Only eight. So the idea is to get everybody together and say, well, what pot should we put it in? All right, as we grow the company. Where, where, put, are, the, where are the eight places? Well, you got receivables, right? You got inventories, you got um, uh, wages, you got taxes, you've got um, uh, capital, fixed assets, you've got. Um, uh, what else you got? You've got, uh, I said inventory, receivables, and basics. I'll give you the eight buckets, but oh, then you got okay, distribution, you, you got shareholder distributions, and then you pay down debt, right? That's your eight. So I might be pay down your debt is the eighth one. I might be pay, I might be filling in a couple gaps here for uh, 
for this for the story that I heard, but I believe it was a client of ours who's probably listening to this because you've become a like an absolute role model for him. And same thing. And I had the same thing with our employees. We're like, you know, $20 million revenue company. Oh my God, the owner must be raining in the money. And it's All like, right. so I believe if I remember the story correctly from our client, because my partner's working more closely with them, they took a bunch of toilet paper rolls, I think it was, or some something ridiculous like that. And then there was a stack, which was the revenue. And then they divided it all up. Because I don't yeah. know if you gave the example in one of your books yeah. or one of and like the employees were like, where's the rest of the money? <laughs> yeah, he's like, that's the yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the, that visual, uh, that visual is very powerful. The, the coolest one was in Wisconsin. A guy owned a label company and he rented out a gymnasium. And so he had the sales guys come out with wheelbarrows and they put the fake money in the middle of the floor. And then they called everybody down from the stages. And then, you know, materials took theirs out, expenses took theirs out. And these guys are on the brink of having a big printing trust. By the time they got done with the 20 million, there was nothing there. And the audience was just quiet. And then what this guy had done is that he had gone to, to a banker and he dressed the banker up in a shirt that said banker. And they rolled out the cash and dumped it into the, so they could buy the fixed asset. What a visual, I mean, a perfect visual, right? Oh Those people gosh. will never forget that. No, because and, and that's what it does is it reduces the intimidation and like it just I think that that is part of the part of the challenges. I mean, and you had mentioned um, I don't know if it was in the first book, um, but like just the how lonely it can be trying to pretend like you have it all put together. Like it's yeah. just. Right. That, that prison alone, it, like even if you have to take a haircut on the valuation to do an ESOP to get out of that prison, yeah, <laughs> is is worth thinking about. Well, uh, you're right. I mean, it's just nobody. Uh, you know, here, in my day when I started, the CEO lasted a long time. The average expectancy is now five years. What happened? Think about that. The average life expectancy of a CEO EO right now is five years. That's really petrifying, you know. Are we talking public companies or private companies? Probably both. I was going to say, if it's public companies, isn't it like 18 months? And just enough to do a yeah, it, stock it buybacks and, it, and It could be shorter. I remember during the uh, dot-com days that there was an actual um, gambling site that you could guess which CEO was going to get fired by what time. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it really was. So... As we're about to wrap up, I think what a timely insight from you would be, I'm curious about, and my partner was curious on is, there's all, there is stats about ESOPs being able to weather downturns and be able to capitalize. I mean, you saved $100 million getting ready yeah. for this. Right. What, like, what is your your insights about ESOPs and employee-owned companies being able to to come out or or weather storms like what's going on right now? I think, you know, ESOPs a mechanism. I, I think the culture is the whole idea of financial literacy. Yeah, You know, I mean, it's really, um, again, uh, getting your people up to really be a business person where they know the right moves to make. I mean, when you hit a, when you hit a period like that, you go to cash, right? You don't even blink. You, you, your guys know exactly what to do and the movements that they're going to make. It's in the speed by which they make it. I mean, when that, when that pandemic hit, you couldn't believe how everybody was so organized and so quick and so fast and knew exactly what to do. Because at the center of this, they were protecting jobs. They were protecting the people that they work with, that they help build the equity they built the company with. All right. That's the action. I mean, that's the concern that you have. It's about people. I mean, it's, you know, there's no question that the gap has been created because of equity. Okay. I mean, you cannot deny that fact. 
But even to this day, nobody talks about that fact, okay? They don't talk about uh, stock ownership, okay? I mean, we have people that just think it's an evil. It's the wrong thing to do. You know, it's, it only goes into a limited number of people's hands. I mean, but it's our only way out, you know? It's our only way. So our people are very, very smart. They're very smart. And, uh, and the CEO doesn't have to do it all for them. I mean, we were running like morning calls to 1,600 people on what to do in the crisis. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, get the get the temperatures right away. Somebody came up with a thermal camera that was in maintenance, all right, that we used to uh, check heat in walls, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, this thing would project like 12 feet out there to see if there was a hot spot. They'd give you the temperature. He comes in with this $4,000 <laughs> piece of equipment on maintenance. He says, I could check everybody's temperatures from 15 feet away, you know? And it worked. <laughs> it was a awesome. thermal thermal camera. We didn't have to go buy the $15 ones. I mean, this guy nailed it to the to the degree. You know, that's how you teach him how to think fast. That's, that's what the, the game one. is all about. So two final questions for you. One is that like, what I just, the, the feeling that I get out of like, the excitement that I get out of what you're, what the machine and the game that you've created, like what is, what does success look like for you? Like what is, what makes it all worth it? And what does success look like? Well, I'm, I, I, I've always thought success uh, would be when this company's strong 10 years after I'm gone. That's awesome. So then the final question is what does the word intention mean for your intentionality? Well, I told you that I first started out by saying once I got it, my intentions was to share it with everybody. And I'll go to my grave sharing it with everybody, all right, because we validated it. You know, for a long time, I was really worried, but if this company failed, this policy would fail with it because we eat our young, all right? We do eat our young. I know it. I know that they'll say, see, see, it sucked. It wasn't, it wasn't the right thing to do. And it was hard to do a dual role. It was hard to be able to tell you that that there's a brighter side of capitalism and then also have to deliver on it, all right? So my intention was to make absolutely certain that we would not only walk the talk, we we would we would share it. We opened up our books to our employees. We opened up our company to everybody else and say, here, here, you know, this works. Let's go show the world that this is a mechanism by which we can all benefit from it. Why has not gone any further than what it is? It's, that's the mystery of life, you know? But it works. It does work. It does work. And I'll tell you what, you, you've only seen the first leg of it. I mean, if it, if it truly is long lasting, I mean, who knows what it could be like. I hope people get it. We just got to figure it out. And I do appreciate people like you and your partners to, you know, to, to understand what the meaning is, but also know the meaning, the effect that it can have on everybody else. What is the best place for people to get in touch with you and get more information? Well, they tell me that I have a, <laughs> 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 uh, it's great game slash jack i oh, like great. that one they got they have my they say i have my own landing page i'm really impressed true delegator i love it yeah i have yeah, a landing I, page yeah you know? perfect and i'll send all the the yeah. i guess resources to your team and you'll be just just dandy <laughs> jack oh, there's a lot of resources they're spending a lot of time trying to you know you guys have a bunch thanks yes ryan thanks for everything buddy As you can tell, I absolutely love that episode. I love what Jack's doing. I think he is one of the best role models that we could have about what is possible using business, using the confidence that you have in your people. And so much comes down to education, getting people on the same page, speaking the same language and aligning everybody's interests. And it 
can be insanely rewarding. Doesn't mean you should go jump right into the pool head first because this is what you want to do. I think the best thing that you can do is to start understanding what the different options are and how to start shifting your mindset, which is why you should get the intentional growth score. If you want to check out to see how well your company's current strategies are aligned with your long-term goals, check out our two-minute multiple choice assessment to get your intentional growth score and your one-page intentional growth vision board. After the 20 multiple choice questions, the results will help you shift your mindset away from the annual income to focusing on long-term value creation, giving you the freedom to choose to do what you want with the business long-term. All you have to do is text the word intentional to 66866 or go to arcona.io to get your intentional growth score. I appreciate you tuning in and I look forward to talking to you next week.